crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. boys looking to beat the New York heat one June afternoon were lounging on a pier along the East River when one of them spotted a bundle bobbing in the water. I mean, this was exciting because the river was used by countless freighters every day, and those freighters had been known to lose a parcel or two as they traveled, meaning free goods for whoever scooped it up. These four boys weren't rich kids. They lived in tenements. Finding a freebie anything was always welcome. Jimmy McKenna, a wiry 13-year-old boy, decided he would grab whatever it was and dove into the murky water. He reached the bundle quickly and dragged it to the rocky shore. It was heavier than he expected, some 30 pounds or so, and also awkward to lug. The package had been wrapped in red and gold oil cloth around which were coils of white rope. One of Jimmy's friends carried a knife at all times, so he whipped it out and began to slice through the rope and oil cloth. The knife hit something soft and blood poured out. Thinking that maybe this package had fallen from a freighter hauling slabs of pork or beef, the boys got more excited, and this could be a major find. After they sliced through the oil cloth, they hit burlap. After they sliced through the burlap, they hit paper. Finally, after hacking away for several minutes, they finally reached the innards of the package. It was a human torso, arms still attached. The boys had been right. This was a major find. The discovery of the East River torso on June 26, 1897, not only kicked off a murder mystery that played out nationwide, but it also pitted against each other two of the nation's most controversial newsmen, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. By the time the case was over, journalism in America would never be quite the same. After the group of teenage boys alerted their parents to the gruesome find they'd uncovered at the East 11th Street Pier, they were hauled to the police station to relay what had happened. Investigators at first were actually annoyed. From an NPR report, The cop said, must be a prank by medical students who often left fingers and limbs just for laughs in doorways and cigar boxes. This was a time period in which medical students were eager to work on real cadavers, and detectives figured that some med student had, for one reason or another, tossed his dissected corpse into the river. It made sense on the surface. The head of the torso had been removed in a way that suggested at least some anatomical knowledge. And the same was true of the torso. If you cut too high, you risk doing some nasty things to a body's internal organs. Whoever had dismembered this body seemed to have known the best places to cut. 
The next day, the lower torso and hips of that beheaded half-corpse washed up along the Harlem River, and the amputation wounds were clearly the work of an amateur driven by malice. The med student theory quickly melted away. The saw marks were too rough. No self-respecting school would teach such sloppy technique. But if this hadn't been a careless cadaver disposal, what was it? And who? Those were the questions posed by journalists. A lot of journalists. Any good crime story would get the attention of the whole panoply of newspapers in New York City. This is... W. Joseph Campbell. I'm a professor of communication at American University in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of seven books, including The Year That Defined American Journalism, 1897 and the Clash of Paradigms. To understand why this case you've probably never heard of qualifies as a crime of the century, you have to understand the media landscape of the time. Friends of the friendless seize the day. Friends of the friendless seize the day. Raise up the torch and light the way. If you've ever seen Newsies, either on stage or on screen, you know a bit about this history. The real-life tale that inspired the musical is useful for stage setting, though it actually occurred two years after the grisly East River find. The musical centers around the newsboys who shouted headlines on street corners to sell editions of two local newspapers, The New York World, which was owned by Joseph Pulitzer, and The New York Journal, owned by William Randolph Hearst. To be clear, The World and The Journal weren't the only newspapers in New York. In fact, the city was home to something like 20 newspapers in the 1890s. Competition among all of the papers was predictably brutal. But The World and The Journal are usually the focus because those two were especially at odds. Pulitzer was older and more established. Hearst was younger and more daring. They were vying for journalistic domination, not just of the Big Apple, but of the whole country. This is the era that coined the term yellow journalism. Even as a journalist, early on, I thought the yellow meant chicken or off-color. In reality, the term comes from an insanely popular cartoon that served as a prototype for what would soon after be called the comics. A publisher of a competing newspaper tried to coin a term for the raw, sensationalist news that Hearst and Pulitzer were pursuing. His first attempt was nude journalism. That didn't catch on. Then he tied the two together by the yellow kid. He was a sort of wisecracking kid of the New York City inner city. And he was dressed invariably in a bright yellow nightshirt. The artist, R.F. Oatkalt, first drew the yellow kid for the New York world. And it was kind of a sensation at the time, 1895, 1896. And Hearst lured Oatkalt away from the world. Rival newspaper editors you know, didn't think much of the yellow kid. And this newspaper editor came up with the term yellow kid journalism and soon thereafter shortened it to yellow journalism, which stuck, which an artifact of 1897 that lives on to this day. The enmity between Hearst and Pulitzer was palpable. Hearst had a ton of money and was young and brash enough that he didn't mind spending it in the pursuit of demolishing his rival. Pulitzer, meanwhile, was rich but far older 
and far more concerned about preserving his wealth. To compete with Hearst, Pulitzer cut the cost of his newspaper in half to one cent, matching the journal's rate. And that sudden drop in revenue meant it wasn't his instinct to flood the city with reporters just because a body had been found. Hearst was 100% in favor of flooding the city, and that's just what he ordered the moment he heard about the headless torso in the river. It was a crime that came along just at the point, really, when William Randolph Hearst was actually launching an evening edition of his newspaper and really trying to go head-to-head with the other great news baron of New York, which was Joseph Pulitzer and his uh, New York world. This is Paul Collins, a Portland State University professor who wrote a book about this case called The Murder of the Century. When this case came along, Hearst decided if the other newspapers weren't going to solve it and if the police weren't going to solve it, uh, he would. One of the fun things for me with this show is I get to build on the knowledge gained from other cases I've researched. So if you've listened to other episodes from around this era, you know that police departments weren't well-funded or well-staffed. Private detective agencies were routinely tapped for help in solving cases. Well, William Randolph Hearst saw no need for private eyes when he had reporters. In fact, he envisioned a role for reporters in crime solving that is kind of baffling if you know the rules of ethics governing most newsrooms today. Hearst had this activist notion of journalism. That was the the kind of journalism that he pursued, the journalism of action that went beyond just talking about stuff, that went beyond just editorializing and tried to take an active role in correcting the wrongs of society. So in newsrooms today, we wouldn't hate being the ones to solve a crime. I mean, imagine the web traffic. But we ethically can't set out to solve one. I mean, if our goal is to solve rather than report, egos get involved. We can fall victim to the same confirmation bias that we're trying to ensure government agencies don't fall victim to. My job is to hold agencies accountable, not win a pissing match over whose theory of the case is correct. This was not one of Hearst's concerns. He lived for pissing contests especially ones with Joseph Pulitzer. Back to the gruesome discoveries. The torso and arms were found one day, the legs found the next. As with the Pearl Bryan case just the year prior, the missing head was going to prove problematic. Fingerprint identification wouldn't reach America for a few years yet, and the body parts were nude, so there were no unique articles of clothing that could help narrow down who this dead man was. In fact, there were slices in the abdomen that seemed to have cut out tattoos that might help identify him. Whoever killed this man wanted to keep police from figuring out his identity for as long as possible. The case didn't start out as a whodunit, as much as a who was it done to, which is probably a big reason it fascinated so many people. Hearst ran with the murder on his front page and Pulitzer, aiming to keep up, followed suit. Quick reminder, because I had to keep reminding myself this too, Hearst ran the journal, Pulitzer ran the world. Hearst journal, Pulitzer world. Okay, so the first big break came from Pulitzer and the world. A reporter named Ned Brown noticed something odd regarding the torso. He noticed that this was a a very muscular body, but the hands seemed very smooth. So it didn't seem like someone who was doing what one would usually associate with manual labor. 
Not only that, but something about the torso and its build looked familiar to him. Can you imagine that, by the way? Looking at a legless, headless body and saying, I think I know that guy. Brown spent hours racking his brain. He eventually realized that where he had seen that was actually in the bathhouses in New York with the masseurs who really you know, had to put a lot of physical effort in, but they kept their skin quite soft. Bathhouses were huge in New York in the late 19th century. Indoor plumbing wasn't widespread then, so bathhouses were made to bolster public health. People would pay around five cents for a bath, soap, and towel. For an extra charge, you could get some big muscle dude to give you a massage as well. Brown thought that this corpse might be such a masseur, or as they called them back then, a rubber. And uh, he started asking around at some of the bathhouses if any of their employees were missing. A name was proffered, Willie Goldensup. It was an interesting lead, but nothing more. Meanwhile, Hearst journal reporters were going a different route. They had zeroed in on that red and gold oil cloth in which the body parts were wrapped. Reporters noticed that this specific pattern wasn't terribly common. The journal reproduced on its front page in color an image of that oil cloth. And it was said to have been one of the first times color printing was used in newspapers in the effort to solve a crime. Not only that, but it was actually the first time that a full-color image had been used on a breaking news story, period. That kind of expense was usually saved for Sunday editions. The reporters managed to track down a store that sold this specific oilcloth pattern, and, lucky for the journal journalists, the woman who owned that store kept great records and handed over the address of the buyers. One address just so happened to be 439 9th Avenue. The journal reporters didn't know it, but one of the people living at 439 9th Avenue was none other than a bathhouse masseur named Willie Goldensup. As the journal traced the oilcloth, Ned Brown of the world showed up at Goldensup's address. He figured it'd be pretty easy to figure out if the missing masseur was the victim, because he'd just knock on the door, and if the dude was there, well, that would eliminate him as Mr. Body. But Brown wasn't hampered by another ethical rule we journalists today have to navigate, which is that we're not allowed to present ourselves as someone we're not. That concept wouldn't be embraced for more than 100 years. So Brown concocted a scheme. He bought a bunch of little soap bars and pretended to be a soap seller. The address in question was an apartment building, so Brown went door-to-door selling samples of this stupid soap below cost so that by the time he reached Golden Sub's door, there was no reason for anyone to be suspicious. He was just a soap-selling dude. Brown braced himself for a well-muscled, soft-handed man to open the door and dash his crime-solving dreams. But that didn't happen. A woman answered the door. As the whole world would soon know, her name was Augusta Knack. Augusta Knack was a 38-year-old, attractive, if slightly weather-worn woman. I mean, 38 in an era with no indoor plumbing surely has to age you a bit. She was married to a man named Herman Knack, but Herman Knack didn't live on 9th Avenue. More on that in a minute. 
Mrs. Knack opened the door to reporter Ned Brown, saw him standing there with one final soap sample, and knew a good deal when she saw one. Brown was selling the stuff for pennies. She agreed to fork over the money, but he enticed her with a possible freebie. Say, you know, I could really use a testimonial, so if you would just try the soap out and tell me that you like it, I'd give it to you for free. Who was Mrs. Knack to turn down free soap? She opened the door so Ned Brown could come inside and wait while she washed her hands. While she did that, Brown scoured her apartment. She was only gone a minute, so he had just enough time to notice a picture of her with a muscular man whose body type sure seemed to match the pieces lying in the morgue. Brown quickly pocketed the framed photo. When Nat came back out, she said she still wanted the soap, but she'd just pay for it. She didn't want to do the whole testimonial thing after all. So Brown happily accepted the payment and rushed off. His bosses at the World weren't as convinced his scoop was as solid as Brown believed, so it didn't run on the front page. It ran inside. Meanwhile, it just so happened that a few reporters from a third New York newsroom, the Herald, were downing some booze at a pub frequented by bathhouse masseurs and prompted largely by Brown's questions, they started talking about whether their missing colleague really was the corpse in question. It's worth noting, by the way, that police had made no such headway. Because initially, uh, the police, they really didn't want to have to deal with it because it didn't look like a case that could be solved very readily, for one thing. And also, the police had just come off really a whole series of scandals, and they didn't need another headache. Hearst didn't see it as a headache. He saw it as a gold mine. The Herald reporters began digging into this golden sub fellow, and they learned he lived with an Augusta Knack, and that Knack was still married to a baker named Herman. This set off alarm bells because who possibly could have more motive to kill a man than the husband of the man's lover? The next morning after the Herald story ran, Herman Knack was arrested, but not by police. Journal reporters saw the scoop, tracked the man down, and conducted a citizen's arrest. If you're wondering what the hell, well, it's a fair question. Hearst created what he called the murder squad. It was a group of reporters. He not only charged with finding clues, but if necessary, arresting people. I mean, legally, anyone can make a citizen's arrest. But for Hearst crime reporters, it basically became part of the job description. So the reporters hauled Herman Knack to the police department, where they compelled a detective to question him, in their presence, of course. I mean, they made the arrest. They wanted the scoop. It turned out, though, that Herman hadn't seen his wife, much less lived with her, for about two years. At that time, the couple had run a boarding house, and their third child died. Not as in their third born, but as in the last of their three. The couple had endured the loss of three children. About the same time, Augusta Knack had grown enamored with one of their boarders, a guy named William Goldensup. He was called Willie by most who knew him, Bill by some others. Goldensup was a few years younger than Mrs. Knack. He'd been born in the Netherlands and was, according to his co-workers, quite the ladies' man. In fact, he had a tendency to indulge in so many flings that the joke around the bathhouse was that someday... He'd get himself in some serious trouble. It wasn't so funny in hindsight. 
That's not to say he was cheating on Mrs. Knack. By all accounts, he really loved the woman. He even referred to her as his wife when he talked about her to co-workers. Even Herman, Mr. Knack, had kind of liked the guy. It became clear quickly to detectives and reporters that Herman didn't seem upset enough to have snapped and killed Goldensup. Naturally, that caused the attention to shift to Mrs. Knack, who was listed on her apartment building's directory as a licensed midwife, which Collins said in his book is kind of funny because there was no license available for midwives in New York in the 1890s. Nevertheless, she claimed to be one. She may have had a role in the New York City underworlds, sort of the seamy side of the medical world. Midwives in the era, especially ones claiming to be licensed when they weren't, often performed illegal abortions. That was certainly scandalous, but it of course didn't mean that she was guilty of killing her boyfriend. Reporters were immediately fascinated by Mrs. Knack as a character. She was unconventional, clearly a sexual being in an age where there was a lot of pearl clutching going on. This kind of woman was scary to people content with Victorian rules of morality. She lived on the edge of the, you know, of the legal world in the lawful world of New York City at the time. I think one of the uh, newspapers at the time referred to her as a large, muscular woman with a determined face. I think she was a force to be reckoned with. Questioned by police and reporters, Augusta Knack said there was no way the body found in the river was Golden Sups, and she could prove it. The first body part was found on a Saturday, and Mrs. Knack said, "Why?" I last heard from Willie on Sunday, so it can't be him. You see, she told police, that good-for-nothing left me for another woman and then had the audacity to ask for money he felt I owed him. Mrs. Knack claimed she'd acquiesced to this money request, pulling out $50 from her bank account and giving it to him. That was Friday. After that, they argued some more, and he left. She hadn't seen him since, she said. But there were problems with Knack's story. For starters, detectives couldn't find any evidence she had pulled $50 from the bank on Friday. Also, the day after telegram she claimed to have received was found, but it was signed Golden Sup, beginning G-U-L-D, which is how most people spelled Willie's last name, but not Willie. He spelled it beginning with G-I-E-L-D. Then a man came forward saying, hey, that woman's the same one who rented an undertaker carriage for me a few days ago. She'd come with a man, but the guy whose picture's been in the paper, that wasn't the one I saw her with. Some more digging pointed to a different former boarders of Nax, a man named Martin Thorne. Thorne was a barber who had the techniques and the ability to, to do some very precise dissecting, if you will, of the human body. Finding Thorne threatened to be tougher than figuring out Golden Sup's identity. There were a lot of barber shops in New York City, and many weren't keen to talk to police. So a detective, finally a detective and not a reporter this time, went for one shave after another so that he could chit-chat with barbers and win their trust enough to ask, hey, do you know anyone named Martin Thorne? His face was raw and razor-burned by the time he found someone who did. 
That guy was the owner of Vogel's Barber Shop on 47th and 6th, who said, sure, I know Thorne. The bugger worked here until he suddenly quit last week. Then one of the other barbers chimed in. As soon as I saw the papers that Knack had been arrested, I thought right away of Thorne. It turned out Martin Thorne was also Augusta Knack's lover. Martin Thorne was about 33 years old and had been born Martin Torzuski in Germany. He had rented a room from Mrs. Knack, who no longer shared a legit boarding house business with her husband, but still rented out spare rooms now and then. The two hadn't been particularly discreet about their relationship. Thorne's co-workers at the barbershop actually said that he would laugh openly at Willie Goldensup for being such a dope. Sure, he might be a musclehead, but he's also an idiot, he would say. But when Goldensup found a pair of Thorne suspenders in Nack's bedroom, he finally caught on. Goldensup was a far bigger guy and very strong. He went after Thorne, who pulled a gun, but the gun wouldn't fire. Next thing Thorne knew, he'd been kicked out of the apartment and had a broken nose and two blackened eyes. Thorne supposedly said to his co-workers, that taught me a lesson. No pistol for me after this. I'm going to get a dagger or a knife. The beating didn't stop the affair. In fact, Thorne and Knack had started searching Long Island for a house where the two of them could move in together. Their dream was that he would set up a barbershop and she'd open a baby farm to make money off unwanted children. Dare to dream, Mrs. Knack. This tidbit could have led investigators on a wild goose chase, but instead, they zeroed in on some ducks. A farmer in Woodside, a neighborhood within Queens, had reported that his ducks had fallen ill on Saturday. He told police because, like every other American with a pulse, He'd been reading about this crazy murder and the ducks had not only been sick, but he'd noticed they were covered in some kind of strange goo. Naturally, he figured this must have something to do with the murders. Police figured it had more to do with this guy being a nutcase, but they took the report anyway. Martin Thorne's colleague had mentioned Long Island, of which Queens is a part, but more than that, he'd specified that he remembered the town Thorne was looking to move to had Wood in its name. There were three of those, Woodbury, Woodhaven, and Woodside. And those sick ducks were in Woodside. I don't know how they thought they could get away with it. I really don't. I don't think there was really something that they thought this thing through. Police tromped out to Woodside and learned that near the sick ducks was a rental home that had recently been rented then promptly abandoned by the new tenants. The tenants had paid a month in advance on the year-long lease, but departed within days. Neighbors had noticed a woman coming and going, and a man, two men, actually, though now that they thought about it, they're pretty sure they'd seen one of those men enter the house, but never leave. A woman named Mrs. Hafner was the caretaker of the home at 346 Second Street. It was a pretty new and cheaply built wood frame house. It stood two stories, had a flat roof, and was nearly windowless. Hafner said she had rented the house to a couple named Mr. and Mrs. Frank Braun. Shown a picture of Augusta Knack, she said, 
Yep, that's Mrs. Braun right there. The house was in a quiet area that managed to be desolate despite also being just a block from a major trolley line. When police searched the house, they found the steel shank of a man's leather shoe in the fireplace. The rest of the shoe had been burned away. Upstairs, they found a bathroom with some dark spattering on the floor and evidence that someone had recently scrubbed the place clean. Detectives went outside, hoping they just might find the one thing that would tie everything together. Golden Sup's head. They came up empty. Headlines over the next couple of days blared Martin Thorne's name and description. Police and reporters alike hoped that the publicity would jog loose some much-needed leads. And it worked. On July 6, about a week after the torso find, a woman arrived at the detective bureau saying that her husband had recently encountered Martin Thorne. Police were dubious at first, but when she said her husband's name, they recognized it as someone they had already questioned the week after the slaying. John Gotha, like Thorne, was a barber who also hailed from Germany. He and Thorne regularly played pinnacle together. That's why police had interrogated him over the weekend, and at that point, Gatha said he hadn't seen Thorne in two weeks. His wife insisted, well, that had been true, but it wasn't true anymore. On July 5th, Gatha had been working at Martinelli's barber shop when a man sat down and said only, haircut. Nothing unusual about that. But when Gatha looked into the mirror at the face of his client, he recognized his old friend Thorne, who just so happened to be the most wanted man in America at that point. Without saying a word, Gotha got to trimming. When the cut was finished, Thorne pressed some money into Gotha's hand, and with the payment was a note that read, Meet me at the corner. Gotha complied, and the two men walked to a saloon where Thorne, tough to recognize because he had shaved his trademark mustache, weaved a horrific tale that ate away first at Gotha's conscience and then at his wife's. According to Thorne, he and Augusta Knack had indeed killed Willie Goldensup. Thorne had gone to the Woodside house early and hid upstairs while Knack enticed her boyfriend to check out the property as a place they might possibly buy. This lined up with what police already knew. Goldensup had taken Friday off of work because, he told his co-workers, he and the missus were checking out a house to buy. Once inside the house, Nack suggested her beau check out the upstairs bedrooms. Golden Sup did so and was ambushed. Thorne shot him, then dragged his massive form into the cramped bathtub where he was dismembered. The worst detail, the one that would especially offend jurors who eventually heard the case, was that, according to Thorne, Goldensup hadn't been fully dead when decapitated. He could tell because of the loud snoring sound that emanated from him during the act. This was all very interesting, but police wanted to know if Gotha had learned anything about Goldensup's head. Gotha had indeed. They severed his head and cased it in plaster Paris and dumped it in the East River, supposedly. Police soon began their search for the head, and they weren't alone. Hearst had grapplers out on the East River, dragging the river. Imagine the headlines if journal reporters found Golden Sup's head. 
The whole scene was insane, drawing gawkers from across the region to watch the river dredging. Then, when people got bored with watching, they started diving in themselves. Debris was pulled from the river bottom, but none of it proved to be the elusive noggin. Without the head, Martin Thorne had a good shot of being acquitted. After all, the only evidence against him was testimony from his barber friend, John Gotha. Augusta Knack had steadfastly insisted that the corpse couldn't belong to her former lover because Golden Sup was still alive. Remember how I said you don't want egos involved when reporting on murders? Well, the journal's insistence that they solved the case led Pulitzer to push for coverage in the world, questioning Knack and Thorne's guilt altogether. One of the paper's longtime and well-respected reporters pushed a theory that the body belonged to a missing woodworker and wasn't Golden Sup at all. This endeared the world to Knack, who gave Pulitzer's paper an exclusive interview in which she said her husband, Herman Knack, had been abusive and she never would have harmed Golden Sup. There was no murder, she insisted. This interview ended up being the beginning of Knack's undoing. Predictably, Herman Knack found these allegations a little upsetting. After the article ran, he went to the district attorney and spilled some dark secrets, specifically that his wife had failed her midwife examinations in Europe, but was working as one in New York nonetheless, that she had been charging $25 for abortions, and that at least two of her pregnant patients died during their procedures. This added even more intrigue and scandal into a story already overflowing with both. And Knack must have found her notoriety worrisome because she ended up changing her story after Martin Thorne's trial had already begun. The trial was going fairly well for for Martin Thorne until Augusta Knack essentially confessed their role in an interview with the New York Journal with Hearst's newspaper. She she did turn state's evidence, and that essentially tipped the case you know, to conviction. Why Augusta Knack confessed is a matter of debate. She said her conscience had started bothering her, but that seems unlikely. More likely, she worried that the head would surface and she didn't want to face murder charges before a jury who likely already thought her a monster because of the newspaper coverage to date. She got ahead of that by turning on Thorne, testifying for the state, and tying her own manslaughter conviction up with a plea deal. That's bolstered by what she said happened. According to Knack, she never wanted to kill Golden Sup, but Thorne was obsessed with him and violent toward her so she felt her life depended on going along with this plan. That was the only reason she agreed to his demands to lure Golden Sub to the Woodside house. Knack insisted that she had nothing to do with the act of slaying him. In exchange for a testimony, she was sentenced to 15 years in prison as she sealed Thorne's fate. Martin Thorne was convicted of murder and, and sentenced to, to death and was electrocuted in August of 1898 at uh, Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York. It was not a peaceful death. It took 59 minutes, according to news accounts, for him to die in the electric chair. It was a pretty gruesome death. 
Augusta Knack made a smattering of headlines after her release from prison in 1907, after serving nine of the 15 years she had been sentenced. A mob awaited her when she reached Grand Central Station in hopes of starting a new, low-key life. And for the most part, she faded into the tapestry of New York, though reporters would invoke her name and the lurid details of the case pretty much whenever a headless torso surfaced, which happens more often than you think. I've personally covered three dismemberments, and in each situation, the case's unraveling began when someone found the torso, just as in this case. The Golden Sup affair also had major impact on the newspaper wars, helping to solidify Hearst's new style of journalism. When the first body parts were found, the journal had a circulation of about 350,000. Two months later, it had leapfrogged past half a million. The war continued as Hearst and Pulitzer butted heads while covering the brief Spanish-American War of 1898. Then again, in the subsequent Philippine-American War that began in 1899. Pulitzer is said to have wished he had never stooped to Hearst's level, Though Campbell thinks a lot of that regret was end-of-life posturing meant to burnish his legacy, which largely worked. We journalists vie every year for a prestigious prize bearing his name, after all. Regardless of Pulitzer's sentiments, we know his actions. After the major stories of the late 1890s, including Golden Sups, Hearst had shoveled $4 million into his newsroom bringing Pulitzer to his knees. Instead of bowing out, the old man had a proposition. How about we just split the market? You do your crazy yellow journalism, and I'll focus on more respectable fare. You charge a penny, I'll charge two. By joining forces, they pummeled the dozen-plus newspapers that were already struggling to compete against them. The New York Times and the New York Post are among the very few who outlived them. To research this story, I read contemporary news coverage and Paul Collins' Murder of the Century, and I interviewed W. Joseph Campbell, author of The Year That Defined American Journalism, 1897 and the Clash of Paradigms. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 